but again, this can be updated with science and stuff like that. Like we believe in an incremental, we don't believe in like final revelations or anything like that. Right. Um, it's just that the the nature of our religious framework is such that it is not that a religious authority is the one to update. It's a personal responsibility. Actually, really interestingly, it's almost like a Protestant iteration of Mormonism. <laughs> Mormons, when, the way they see truth is very interesting because they do believe like us that God distributes truth to people at different times through various prophets, or you can have like self-prophets or whatever, right? And so you pray to God and he tells you what's true and what's not true. But this is still all largely decided and distributed through a central church organization. Whereas we believe something very similar, but we believe that it's the personal responsibility of every individual to come to these truths on their own. And that truth is more efficiently achieved through large groups of individuals coming to these truths on their own, and then God showing which truths were actually true by which of those individuals end up influencing the future. This was written in 1872. We teach that the soul is immortal. We teach that there is a future life. We teach that there is a heaven in the ages far away, but not for us single corpuscles not for us dots of animated jelly but for the one we are the elements and who though we perish never dies but grows from period to period and by the united efforts of the single molecules called men or those cell groups called nations is raised towards the divine power which he will finally attain would you like to know more malcolm when people ask if you're religious what do you tell them <laughs> Very. I, I'm, a, I'm a religious extremist. I understand that I'm a religious extremist. You know, what's um, really hard, though, is I was I need to create a, a profile on Ballotopedia, right? Because we're doing this state house run next year. And there's this immensely long drop down menu of religions where you have to, like, say what your religion is. And I'm like, mm, like, it's not we get we there's not there's not a drop down menu item for what we have it, despite the fact that i would say we are more religious than probably oh, like we'll say nine, nine at least 90% of people maybe more yeah maybe more yeah and this is really interesting and and it, so this is something in a previous video somebody's like look i've picked up some ideas around your religious beliefs you know listening to your videos but i've never seen one that gave like the core concept in detail and mm. it's because we've kind of avoided doing that we don't really believe in intense proselytization yeah um because we believe in the elect and we believe that truths will be revealed to the people it's meant to be revealed to mm -hmm. and so we're a little gatekeepy about things but i suppose it's worth going into this now to start because i think it makes sense to sort of understand our broader religious perspective here is i think if you take just what the Bible says. And you're saying that's all that's going to inform my religious beliefs. You are likely going to be, I think the religion that's most backed by that is Protestantism and specifically primitive Baptist form of Protestantism, which is a Calvinist tradition. But anyway, generally that's what, what I believe when I try to look at this as like it is as, as, <laughs> dis disassociated as I can, but obviously, you know, I do have a stake in the game because I came from one uh, uh, religious perspective and not another. Yeah. I think if you look at biblical traditions and you say what matters is traditions and hierarchy and, and order, then Catholicism is obviously the right answer. If you think what matters is traditions and oligarchy and consensus, then you're going to be 
a Greek Orthodox. Like, I think that many of the positions that are mainstream Christian positions make sense if you take specific views towards truth and how one should ferret out or divine truth from the Bible. Yes. Now, our perspective of truth is a little different. We don't think that God is, is from our perspective, so naive that he would try to lay out his entire teachings to Jews living two centuries ago in a backwards Roman province. Probably. That is like... Sorry, I don't mean anything like I, the reason I say Jews. Though, I don't mean anything derogatory about Jews. What I'm saying here is it's a you know a unique cultural group on the edge of the world, right? At the time, not not total edge of the world, but you know what I mean. I I think that God would understand that the way He would explain truth to those people as best He could would be different to the way He would explain the truth of the universe to somebody who was more technologically advanced. Mm. And, and let's not even talk about us. Like, let's imagine where if humanity survives and we're still around in 500 years from now, God explaining to us what's tr like, like that 500 years in the future was like super advanced intelligences, intellect, everything like that. Right. And full understanding of physics, full understanding of reality, him explaining to those people in like his last revelation that, yeah, the one time I was going to explain to any of you what was true, it was that one time was those Jews in the desert. That seems like, to me, not true. Like, that mm -hmm. seems obviously not true, that he would have different revelations for different people within different periods. And what's very interesting, so, so essentially what we believe is that God revealed portions of truth to different prophets throughout time in well, a way that was meant to influence them specifically, their people specifically. In and other words, God understood his target audience and their needs at the time. Exactly. To elaborate on this concept a bit, it would be incredibly capricious for God to have waited throughout like a huge chunk of human history containing a huge number of individual human lives to then put Jesus on earth with his final and full revelation and then make that revelation one that it is necessary to have both been exposed to and understand for salvation, but have that revelation then like really only slowly move out from where it was first revealed, not make it to the Americas for, you know, centuries after that. And all the people who were living in the Americas are just, you know, fucked because there was only one true revelation, only released in this one spot. And then you could say, okay, well then, why didn't God reveal his revelation earlier? And I think that, that the Jewish people show this to an extent, where that was God beginning to to reveal himself to people. So he's like, yes, I'm a, I'm a singular entity. But he had to anthropomorphize the entity, you know, for the people and their place. He needed to create an iteration of the story that helped incrementally improve their vision of what God was, but not fully cast it in stone. And you can be like, well, why wouldn't he do that? Why, why wouldn't he give them a full vision? And God was gracious enough to carve into history exactly why he didn't reveal himself more fully at that time with the religion of Aten, you know, the religion that was created by the Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten and lasted for a very short period of time. They said, no, you should think of God more like a, 
light or like a circle beyond what you as an individual can understand. Certainly not something with an anthropic personality. People of that time period needed a simpler god to be able to get closer to the truth. And it was the same with Christ's revelation and other revelations, that these revelations were for humanity at that particular period. And there were specific truths that humanity at that period was not mentally capable of understanding or accepting. In addition, different revelations were specifically crafted by God, not just for people of specific periods, but people of specific cultural groups and geographic locations. So these revelations are not just temporally locked, but they are geographically locked. You as an individual are likely going to gleam more about the nature of God by studying your own ancestral traditions than by studying other groups' ancestral traditions. And it is through the interaction of people with these different perspectives on God that a truer vision of God can be revealed. And interestingly, this belief is really illustrated in Islam. Well, what Islam actually says. So Quran 35:24, verily we have sent with the truth as a bearer of glad tidings and a warner, and there never was a nation but a warner had passed among them. So what this means is that God sent warners, prophets, whatever you want to say them, to every nation throughout human history, mm -hmm. including those before the one that Muhammad was in. Mm -hmm. So you look at Quran 1636, for we assuredly sent amongst every people a messenger with the command, serve a laud and eschew evil. Okay, now Quran 12.2. Indeed, we sent it down an Arabic Quran that you might understand. So this is saying the reason why the Quran is in Arabic is so that you may understand, okay? Mm -hmm. Where you means Arabic speakers or whoever heard that message from their parents. And the Quran really explicitly spells out that this is what it meant, you know, with lines like, he sent down the book, the Quran, to you with truth, confirming what was before it, and he sent down the Torah and the Gospel. Meaning the Quran was meant to confirm both the Torah and the Gospel as true. And keep in mind, we have iterations of the Gospel and the Torah from that period, so we know what the text broadly would have looked like that Muhammad was seeing. It was very similar to the text that we have today. Now, what's really interesting is you could say, oh, okay, yeah, but he also said, quote, 25.1, blessed is he who sent down the criteria of right and wrong in the Quran to his slave, Muhammad, that he may be a warner to all peoples. And we would say, yes, but that also fits within our religious framework. He is a warner to all peoples in through how this message affects all people. All prophets that have affected any people are really prophets for all people insofar as those people affect other people. But there is going to be some truth that any individual that is um, among the elect can withdraw from their teachings by prayerfully investigating them. So, you know, Jesus was meant as a prophet for his people. Moses was meant as a prophet for his people. Joseph Smith was meant as a prophet for his people. We do think some prophets matter much more than other prophets. For example, we think that Jesus was a uniquely important prophet. To get an understanding of how this works, suppose God was trying to communicate to an ancient Jewish audience that he was 
astronomically beyond their current understanding to the extent where it was dangerous to reveal himself fully to them. How would he show that to him? He might show that as directly seeing him or directly hearing his voice killing someone, that a direct revelation would be harmful at this time period or to humans as they existed back then. And this was something that he revealed. So he was revealing to them in the way that they could understand things that were more sophisticated than a message that could mimetically transfer within human populations of that time period. And we still do not have a full revelation because a full revelation is not meant for us. We are not capable of understanding or accepting a full revelation, but we can attempt to get closer to one. Now, I should be clear here, what I am not saying is all religions have some vague element of truth to them, and the real truth is a combination of all previous religious prophets' messages. What I am saying is that there is one absolute truth. We are just incapable of understanding it, but if you are among the elect, you have a duty to attempt to understand it, or at least as much as you can with your current lower order body. And sort of like looking at a four-dimensional object, people in three-dimensional space looking at it from different angles are going to see it in different ways, and it is through stitching together these three-dimensional representations that we can get a better understanding of what the four-dimensional object might look like, while still understanding that we are incapable of even imagining what a four-dimensional object looks like with our current brains. And so when somebody's like, no, 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 these two prophets are completely incompatible, that is because they are trying to stitch two three-dimensional objects together into a single three-dimensional object, which of course you might not be able to do, but a four-dimensional object can appear to be two entirely different and contradictory three-dimensional objects, two entities that they can only understand and perceive three-dimensional objects. So the existing prophets, when God delivered messages through them, those were messages that had to be mediated by humanity's understanding of the world at that time and in that geography. So now you understand our broad frameworks of like where we sort of come down on like where truth comes from. It comes down through uh, revelation from God that can be determined both through human events, through prophets, and through the study of natural reality and biology and everything like that. But then the question becomes, okay, how did we come to this position? This is really interesting. So I started my childhood very atheistic. I grew up in a mostly like mystical family. My dad believed in some like new agey stuff. I think your parents were sort of similar. We were exposed to many religious traditions, but our families were basically new age mystic sort of people. Yeah, my parents uh, called themselves born again Buddhists and I went to a Mormon preschool and pretty much everyone I knew growing up was atheist. So we didn't have these traditions. Now, my grandfather was a strict Calvinist. You know, your grandfather was a strict Calvinist. But we otherwise grew up away from these, these traditional practices. And as I was developing my religious beliefs, I was a strict atheist. I was enamored with things like the subgenius movement. I was an annoyed by things like the new atheist movement, but I thought that they were largely correct. You know, I considered myself on team atheist. I collected scientific baubles and everything like that. And on one of these collecting journeys, 
uh, it was an estate sale for like a dead scientist that had all been taken to a single thrift store. So they had, you know, collections of his old medical instruments and books that he had in his collection. And one of these books I picked out, I don't remember what particularly compelled me to pick it out at the time, but I was scrolling through it and I found some lines in it that seemed really prophetic to me about what was going to happen in the future. And I thought, this is cool. Like, I didn't really think anything else of it at the time. And then it got a place in our museum. And that book was this book, The Martyrdom of Man. Okay? So we're going to talk a bit more about this earlier because it's actually pretty important to our religious beliefs. Now, fast forward um, over a decade, maybe a decade and a half. I am writing the Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion, and I am beginning to realize the importance of religion to healthy societies, to the way humans think, to raising children, to intergenerational cultural fidelity. I am understanding its instrumental purpose. And so I start thinking to myself, I'm like, okay, and we, we talk about this. Simone and I are talking about this every day. It's not like me alone. When I say I, I mean Simone and myself. Um, we're talking about this. We're like, okay, so we want to create a culture for our kids that is resistant to things like cultural viruses that is mostly in line with what we think it's true about the world from scientific investigation of the world. Uh, not, you know, scientists lie about some things. I, I agree with that, right? Like we treat science with a lot of skepticism. Trust However, but here, <laughs> broadly, the scientific understanding that you and I and even the lay person has today is much higher than the scientific understanding of the past. Yes. And to me, some aspects of that understanding, like evolution, for example, seem incongruous uh, with things that previous people have believed. Now, the same with particle physics and stuff like that, you know, understandings of time, timelines, everything like that. So I am things like consciousness. If you watch our episode on sentience, we don't think that there's strong evidence that humans are sentient, but that's like a completely different topic that we can, well, I, I can get to it briefly here. So if you look at studies on human sentience, what we find is that if you do something like stimulate a portion of a human's brain, which is meant to like lift a finger or something like that, they'll be like, oh, I felt like lifting that finger. This is done during open brain surgeries. Or if you give a split brain patient like a Rubik's cube, right? And you can communicate with only one half of their brain because their brain actually, the corpus callosum is split. And so you cover an eyeball and you're communicating with the opposite side of the brain. And you're like, why did you pick up that Rubik's cube? But secretly on the other side of the eye, you had given them a note telling them to pick up that Rubik's cube. They'll say, well, I've always felt like solving a Rubik's cube. If you do an experiment where you give a person, you ask their like opinion on something political, or you ask their opinion on like, which of these women did you find most attractive? And then you like subtly change which opinion through sleight of hand they chose. And then you're like, why did you choose this opinion? It wasn't the opinion they chose. They'll come up with a complicated reason why they chose that opinion. If you look in fMRIs at like, well, how people make decisions, it appears that the decision is actually made quite a bit before they're conscious of it. So really what this all implies to me is that our brain, the part of it that makes decisions, is mostly operating outside of the part of our brain, which is conscious, sentient. And then the sentient part of our brain is like not a guy driving a car, but a guy watching a series of cameras for a security video that is then trying to ex what happened in those videos is a single coherent narrative. And that this likely evolved for human-to-human -human communication. Think of it like a system for data compression of human narratives and experiences before human-to-human -human communication. That's what we mean when we talk about types of revelations that people in the past may not have been ready for. Now this becomes important in a bit, but anyway, 
back to where we're going with all of this. So we were like, okay, so we're going to create a, a narrative that we think is true is what we understand about the world today. And we think is inspired by these previous traditions, you know, looking a lot to our Calvinist heritage, looking a lot to the way that they saw the world as sort of predestined, which we also think is very likely to be true. So we have a, another video on this where we go into this topic in a lot more detail, but it's important to understand that our view of the way predestination works neither precludes multiple or splitting timelines, nor does it preclude free will. We see it as coming from the perspective of which you look at a timeline. So, for example, in a traditional Calvinist framework, because God is viewing the timeline from outside of the timeline in the same way that me watching a video that was filmed, you know, a few days ago, I'm watching that video from outside of the perspective of the events in that video. So while from my perspective, all of the events in that video are predestined from the players in the video, they're not predestined. So we think that physics, like the laws of the universe, exist outside of time and that uh, me as an individual, the actions I take are determined by the laws of physics, basically, and, and, and thus the things that happened in the physical universe before I made that decision. There's no sort of external component at play here. There's no sort of soul, no nothing like that. Everything that I do is because of the things that happen to me and the things I am thinking in the physical laws. Now, what this means for me, which is really interesting, is it actually means that we believe that in a world without predestination, an individual would have less agency than in a world with predestination. Because what that world would have is the ability for the person to end up making decisions that are not based on the things that have happened before them and what they were thinking at the time, but based on something external to them, which robs them of agency. You can go into the free will video that we created if you want to go into this topic in more detail. It's for splitting timelines, we think it's a possibility. It really is irrelevant. Timelines may actually split in a way that's not exactly predestined into random events happening within space-time or within subspace. However, because those events have no connection to human consciousness, they don't really affect this debate in any meaningful way. Get to how we see metaphysical states really quickly before I go too deep. So how do we see the metaphysics of the world working, right? If the world can be explained by a mathematical equation, like if we get to a universal theorem for explaining reality, and that is a single mathematical equation or a series of mathematical equations, okay? And then we say, okay, well, suppose you're imagining different universes, right, that operate off of different sets of laws. Do you think in all of those universes, two plus two would always be four? You know, outside of instances in which you have changed the rules of math specifically, like, you know, non-Euclidean geometry, and then that's just math with additional rules. It's not like two plus two doesn't equal four anymore. I would say, no, that's, that's true across all potential universes. So what that then means is that is true outside of all potential universes. Now, if our reality can be described by an equation and that equation exists or that collection of equations exists outside of all potential universes, then that equation exists whether or not these universes exist. Then mm -hmm. I ask myself the question, okay, well, like if I'm graphing a line, like if I have an equation for graphing a line, right, do I need to graph that line for that equation to for, for that line or, or to exist as like an intrinsic property or an emergent property of the equation itself? Mm -hmm. To me, the answer is no. <laughs> so basically our metaphysical understanding of reality is that reality is a self-graphing equation of a description of how the universe could work because 
if we have two potential universes, like suppose the universe is described by an equation and equations exist outside of time. So we can say, okay, we either exist in a universe with like actual material things, the things that are described by this equation, right? But even if we lived in that universe, a mirror universe, if basically things self-graph, if the things that an equation represents exist outside of them being graphed, mm -hmm. a mirror universe where people like us who thought everything we thought and felt everything we felt would exist mirrored to that universe. And thus Occam's razor, like the real Occam's razor, if something would exist anyway, you don't need to assume it exists. So that's like the metaphysics of how we think reality exists. But again, this can be updated with science and stuff like that. Like we believe in an incremental. We don't believe in like final revelations or anything like that. Right. Um, it's just that the the nature of our religious framework is such that it is not that a religious authority or prophet is the one to update this, but rather sort of our, our scientific consensus and our understanding of what has been essentially mathematically or otherwise physically and tangibly proven. Would you say that's it's, fair? Yes, yeah, a personal responsibility. Actually, really interestingly, it's almost like a Protestant iteration of Mormonism. <laughs> if you guys want to see our Mormon video, Mormons, when, the way they see truth is very interesting because they do believe, like us, that God distributes truth to people at different times through various prophets, or you can have like self-prophets or whatever, right? And so you pray to God and he tells you what's true and what's not true, but that can be updated. So unlike other religions, like a modern prophet can say like, Joseph Smith was wrong when he said this, or Brigham Young was wrong when he said this. Like a previous prophet was just wrong because we have a more perfect revelation now. Um, but this is still all largely decided and distributed through a central church organization. Whereas we believe something very similar, but we believe that it's the personal responsibility of every individual to come to these truths on their own. And that truth is more efficiently achieved through large groups of individuals coming to these truths on their own. And then God showing which truths were actually true by which of those individuals end up you know, being successful and influencing the future. And when I say successful, I don't mean indulging in opulence. That is a sign of sin to us. Anybody who adorns themselves in, in wealth, like to us, that is a sign of personal sin, hmm. uh, which is almost sort of the opposite of the prosperity. Well, it's like the prosperity doctrine in that if you accumulate a bunch of wealth, that is God testing you or the basilisk testing you, but we'll get to what we mean by that in a second. But he is testing to see if you will spend it on self-aggrandizement and, 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 and improving, you know, your own vanities and lifestyle, or will you spend it on sort of long-term projects, improving human flourishing and, and serving the divine, right? Um, but I, I do think it would be really funny if you would go into, we'll say the characters or figures of our religion. That's the fun what, stuff. That's what, do you what mean by that? Here. The agents of providence, the, oh, yeah, the god, the basilisk. Okay, I'll go quickly into this. So the agents of providence, or Simone calls them the future police. These are the, so, okay, first broad strokes of our religion. We need to get into this first. When we're telling our kids about our religion, we're basically saying in 100,000 years or a million years, your descendants. Do you think they will be closer to the way you understand a human or the way you would think of a God? And I think most reasonable people would be like, yeah, in a million years, humans, if we're still around, are probably going to be closer to the way we would conceive of a God today. Mm -hmm. And then we say, well, so who's to say they relate to time the same way we do? Like, that would be almost naive to think they relate to time the same way we do. And so we believe that they are self-manifesting entities which nudge sort of the timeline in the direction that leads to what leads them to exist, which is a pluralistic flourishing human species. And why does pluralism matter? 
Well, so if we believe that truth is determined through multiple individual revelations and then the revelations truth determined by their efficacy, as somebody said in our comments, like the truth of the thing will be determined by its fruits, you know, so you can look at individuals, see how well their life is going, see how well their message is spreading and learn whether or not that message is true or untrue. In fact, you can learn the efficacy of a, a, a prophet, like the amount of genuine knowledge God gifted them by their ability to predict the future. So, you know, I think that things like the Bible, the Quran, the Old Testament, they do have a level of prediction of the future, more so than other secular documents of the time, both in terms of how much they've impacted human history, which proves their divinity, but also in terms of little things worded in them. But this then comes to me, We'll get to this in a second, but when I was developing this theory, I was like, huh, I should look through every document I've ever said that I thought predicted the future in the past. Mm. We're going to get to that in a second. Then we also believe in the basilisk. So we believe that there are sort of two entities in the future, but they're really the same entity, which is to say one entity rewards those individuals who make the world a more likely place for a prosperous, flourishing humanity and that make individual sacrifices to lead to that eventuality. And then the other individuals provide tests for people to see if they're worthy to play this role and to strengthen them because we believe that strength comes through hardship. Suffering is what makes us strong. It is through enduring suffering that we... And you see this in most of world's great figures, you know, whether it's, you know, Caesar or Winston Churchill or Alexander the Great, they often undergo some immense suffering as children. And it is through that suffering or Jesus that they learn or, or they, they are tested to see if they are worthy of fulfilling that role within the great design. And it is that suffering that edifies their spirit. And the more that they endure sort of consistent suffering throughout their life while still being happy, like not indulging in it, not allowing them to it to break their spirit, they show their worthiness, you know, as, as the elect, the people who are going to influence the system. But let's get back to that little thing I noted earlier, which is very important to us. So we were doing this thing. Or, or, the thing I noted earlier, which is where sort of everything really began to change for me. So we started living by the system we created for our kids. We're like, ah, this broadly works. We had a few holidays that we had planned out, everything like that. And as we were living with the ceremony, as we were living, just believing this was true, being like, does this work? Things kept happening that I couldn't explain by mere coincidence, not easily. And not just confirmation bias. I'm familiar with confirmation bias. I know that confirmation bias affects people even when they're warned about confirmation bias. But I, ultra-rational Malcolm, was like, oh shit, is this actually true? And, and, <laughs> and it could actually be true because given the way we had structured this belief system, we would have come to structure it that way even if it was true. Like these, these agents of providence can influence people through multiple means and in multiple ways. They may influence somebody to do something that they think is a scam and a cult, but it's actually the truth. Or they might influence people like us to be like, okay, create this for your family. And then it, it actually turns out to be the truth and we can determine them by looking at that. So this is where I came back to that question. Okay, well, let's look for where things have predicted the future in the past in ways that were uncanny, in ways that seemed impossible. And then Simone, you remember this. So the kids kept playing with this fucking book. <laughs> um, and actually, the day before I was thinking about this, I was like, 
they had ripped out a page or something. And yeah. I so we, we were, we were downstairs and they had moved it to the top of our little fireplace thing. And Torsten, we, we caught him tearing out a page from the book and we're like, Oh my God, no, like not, not the decorative books. Yeah. Don't so do I, that. I, taking it out of the room and it was actually sitting in my room that day when I was thinking about it. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, well, I should probably check this thing out again just to see if this theory we have, because if we have a theory about the way the world works, it should be testable in some way. This is before the Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion came out or anything like that. So I go into this book and we don't really talk about this in detail in the Pragmatist Guide to Religion because in honesty, I'm a bit embarrassed by it. It's a little too... Um, it, it feels too religious to me. <laughs> like it aesthetically bothers me that this happened. I go through this book and not only were its prophecies more accurate than I remembered, but it basically lays out the exact framework that I had laid out for my family hundreds of years ago. And that was like, whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. I kind of actually really believe this now. Yeah, it's a little uncanny. So it's let's go into bit. it because I think it's worth sort of reading what I was thinking, what was influencing me, and something that we sort of see as like an actual religious text now to us, okay? <laughs> and, and this has some dot, dot, dots here where I'm taking stuff out or sometimes updating old English to modern English because it's otherwise hard to understand. Mm. And for note, this was written in 1872. To give you an idea of just how long ago this was, this was before the Thomas Edison light bulb patent was filed. This is before Jules Verne published Around the World in 80 Days. This was even before bicycles came into popular use. And the types of bicycles that would have come into popular use shortly after this was published were penny farthings. Those bicycles with like the giant front wheel and tiny back wheel. Earth, which is now a purgatory, will be made a paradise. Not by idle prayers and supplications, but by the efforts of man himself and by means of mental achievements analogous to those which have raised him to his present state. Three inventions, which perhaps may be long delayed, but which possibly are near at hand, will give this overcrowded island, he's talking about the British islands here, the prosperous conditions of the United States. The first is the discovery of a motive force which will take the place of steam with its cumbrous fuel of oil or coal. Okay, exactly right and right in order. Secondly, the invention of aerial locomotion, which will transport labor at a trifling cost of money and of time to any part of the planet. Okay, exactly right. All right, next. At which, by annihilating distance, will speedily extinguish national distinctions, globalism. And thirdly, the manufacture of flesh and flour from the elements by a chemical process in the laboratory, similar to that which is now performed within the bodies of animals and plants. Oh my God, we have exactly done this recently. Welp. Okay. Food will then be manufactured in unlimited quantities at trifling expense, which I should remind you, a lot of people today are like, that's not happening. <laughs> From the perspective of somebody in the late 1800s, yes, 
food today is manufactured at unlimited quantities and trifling expense. And I will put a graph on the screen of the number of the world's population who go hungry so you can see just how much we have fixed this issue and how much more we will fix it as this technology gets better. Mm. Then he says, and our enlightened prosperity will look back upon us who eat oxen and sheep just as we look back upon cannibals. Hunger and starvation will then be unknown, and the best part of the human life will no longer be wasted in the tedious process of cultivating the fields. Note, that has already happened. Yep. <laughs> um, we This is true for, for most humans today, and we, we do not cultivate the fields, the vast majority of humans anymore. Population will mightily increase, and the earth will be a garden. Governments will be conducted with the quintitude and regularity of club committees. The interest which is now felt in politics will be transferred to science. The latest news from the laboratory of the chemist, or the observatory of the astronomer, or the experimenting room of the biologist will eagerly be discussed. Poetry and the fine arts will take that place in the heart which religion now holds. Luxuries will be cheapened and made common to all. None will be rich and none poor. Now, this is really interesting because this last part of the prophecy, he explicitly lays out, this will happen after we have learned how to create meat in a lab. Okay? So he, he says, we're going to invent combustion engines. We are going to invent flight Flight will lead to globalism. We will then be able to create meat in a lab. <laughs> and then he talks about the social causes. That meat in a lab will lead to people to look back at people who eat animals negatively, which I think will eventually happen once with this technology becomes better and more widespread. And then eventually we will become a post-scarcity society. This is the man in the 1800s talking about this. Mm -hmm. Okay. But now you need to see why when I read this, I was like, oh, no, this is uncannily what we believe and what you have seen us believe in, in previous videos and stuff like that. Um, and, and note, we read these books during one of our family holidays, Martyr Day, which takes place before Future Day, which we've talked about in a previous video. But we can go into all our holidays in a video that's not like broadly about our religious beliefs. Not only will man subdue the forces of evil that are without, he will also subdue those that are within. He will repress the base instincts and propensities which he has inherited from the animals below. He will obey the laws that are written on his heart. He will worship the divinity within him as our conscience forbids us to commit actions which the conscience of the savage allows. So the moral sense of our successors will stigmatize as crimes those offenses against the intellect which are sanctioned by ourselves. This is really important. Idleness and stupidity will be regarded with abhorrence. Women will become the companions of men and tutors of their children. Note here, this is, this is very important here. So he admits that men and women are different, something that many of the woke do, do not admit in our society today. But he also thinks that women deserve a level of equality within the family. So they should be equals of men, but still have a unique role within the child-rearing process. Thank you. I love your sanity. <laughs> Sorry, next. Men will look upon this star as their fatherland. Its progress will be their ambition, the gratitude of others, their reward. These bodies, which now we wear, belong to lower animals. Our minds have already outgrown them. Already we look upon them with contempt. Here, here. Come when science will transform them by means which we cannot conjecture and which even if explained to us, we could not now understand just as a savage cannot understand electricity, magnetism, or steam. 
that is so like just in line with everything we believe. From the moment I understood the weakness of my flesh, it disgusted me. I craved the strength and certainty of steel. I aspired to the purity of the blessed machine. Your kind claimed your flesh as if it will not decay and fail you. One day the crude biomass that you call the temple will wither, and you will beg my kind to save you. But it is also insane that someone in the 1800s was writing this. Disease will be extirpated. The causes of decay will be removed. Immortality will be invented. And then the earth being small, mankind will migrate into space and will cross the airless Saharas, which separate planet from planet and sun from sun. The earth will become a holy land, which is visited by pilgrims from all quarters of the universe. Finally, men will master the forces of nature. They will become themselves the architects of systems, the manufacturers of worlds. So, this is really interesting. I think a lot of people would think that we would have some umbrage because they know our stance on life extensionism, but I need to be clear. Our life extensionism is based around modern life extensionism, okay? Not the life extensionism of intergenerational improvement, which he clearly supported. I am for, you know, when we have the technology to eventually do easy life extensionism and cheaply maintain people, yeah, that makes sense to do, but not when it's coming at the cost of other visions for the future, or it's leading to the stagnation of our species, which he would see as an abhorrent sin. Of course. But let's continue. Man will then be perfect. He will then be a creator. He will therefore be what the vulgar worship as a god. There is but a difference in degree between the chemist who today arranges forces in his laboratory so that they produce a gas and the creator who arranges forces so that they produce a world between a gardener who plants a seed and the creator who plants a nebula. We do not wish to extirpate religion from the life of man we wish him to have a religion which will harmonize with his intellect, exactly what we were trying to create. And he came to the same conclusions we did. And which inquiry will strengthen, not destroy. We wish, in fact, to give him a religion. For now, there are many who have none us growing up. We teach that there is a God, but not a God of the anthropic variety, not a God who is gratified by compliments in prose and verse, and whose attributes can be cataloged by theologians. God is so great that he cannot be defined by us. God is so great that he does not deign to have personal relations with us human atoms that are called men. Those who desire to worship their creator must worship him through mankind. Such it is plain is the scheme of nature. We are placed under secondary laws. These we must obey to develop, 
to the utmost our genius and our love, that is the only true religion. To do that which deserves to be written, to write that which deserves to be read, to tend the sick, to comfort the sorrowful, to animate the weary, to keep the temple of the body pure, to cherish the divinity within us, to be faithful to the intellect, to educate those powers which have been entrusted to charge and to employ them in the service of humanity. That is all we can do. Then our elements shall be dispersed and all is at end. All is at end for the unit. All is at end for the atom. All is at end for that speck of animated blood and flesh with the little spark of instinct which calls itself mind, but all is not at the end for actual man, the true being, the glorious one. We teach that the soul is immortal. We teach that there is a future life. We teach that there is a heaven in the ages far away, but not for us single corpuscles not for us dots of animated jelly but for the one we are the elements and who though we perish never dies but grows from period to period and by the united efforts of the single molecules called men or those cell groups called nations is raised towards the divine power which he will finally attain so in other words he's he's extremely like we're, we're on exactly the same page when it comes to how we, within our religious framework, before Malcolm took a really close look at this book, see the definition of human, sort of our, our soul, like how we see ourselves as part of an unbroken chain of humanity and achievement and self-sacrifice that makes a better future and a brighter future possible. Yeah, but not so he really nails it. Yeah, but not just that, but other concepts that he's getting here, like humans not being particularly sentient. This is not something anyone in his time period was saying. Oh, yeah. People were barely even talking about sentience. So yeah, it's it's pretty meaningful. So, yeah, I mean, this is nations like groups of humans being part of a larger emergent entity is also to me really powerful. Like in the mm -hmm. same way that our cells are individual living entities, that we have a microbiome within us and all together we are represented as a single entity. We are cells, we are atoms within our countries, within our cultural groups and within human civilization. Yeah, so sort of broadly speaking, our religion, as, as we've alluded to, like if we were to sum this all up, it we practice descendant worship in the form of the potential that humanity must and will create our god is an inevitable god in the sense that our progress as humans is inevitable so long as we don't destroy ourselves so long as essentially we're virtuous so our our god is the reward for good behavior and we we yep. judge the accuracy and respectability of I guess you could say prophets like when when would read here by their shot calling ability, which is kind of the same criteria we use for determining whether this is someone that we should trust with business, with investment, with politics, with exactly uh, this is how broadly we determine truth for the criteria of authenticity, which we outline in the Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion, right. which basically says that truth is best determined 
by filtering expert knowledge through ways that they might be pressured or influenced to manipulate that law, knowledge or lie. And we go through like 12 points of these. This is not really important for this. Basically, it's a trust but verify way of determining what's true while saying mm -hmm. that experts will have access to some knowledge that the layperson will not have access to, but experts will also be motivated to lie about some things. Mm -hmm. But let's go back to scripture here, Simone. A day will come when the European god of the 19th century will be classified with the gods of the Olympus and the Nile, when surplices and sacramental plates will be exhibited in museums, when nurses will relate to children the legends of Christian mythology as they now tell fairy tales. A day will come when the current belief in property after death, for is not existence property and the dearest property of all, will be accounted a strange and selfish idea, just as we smile at the savage chief who believes that his gentility will be continued in the world beneath the ground, and he will there be attended by his concubines and slaves. The world will become a heavenly commune to which men will bring the inmost treasures of their hearts in which they reserve themselves not even a hope, not even a shadow of joy, but will give up for all mankind with one face with one desire they will labor together in the sacred cause the extinction of disease the extinction of sin and the perfectibility of genius the perfectibility of love the invention of immortality the exploration of the infinite and the conquest of creation this is the most key part right here that i need to read okay and then i will stop because i know simone gets annoyed by me reading scripture okay and no one want to hear that you blessed ones who shall inherit that future age of which we can only dream. You pure and radiant beings who shall succeed us on the earth when you turn back your eyes on us poor savages grubbing in the ground for our daily bread, eating flesh and blood, dwelling in vile bodies which degrade us every day to a level with the beast, tortured by pains and by animal propensities, buried in gloomy superstitions, ignorant of nature which yet holds us in her bonds, when you read of us in books. When you think of what we are and compare us with yourselves, remember that it is to us you owe the foundation of your happiness and grandeur to us now in our libraries and laboratories and star towers and dissecting rooms and workshops are preparing the materials of human growth. And as for ourselves, if we are sometimes inclined to regret that our lot is cast in these unhappy days, let us remember how much more fortunate we are than those who lived before us a few centuries ago. The working man enjoys more luxuries today than did the king of England in Anglo-Saxon times, and at his command are intellectual delights, which but a little while ago the most learned in the land could not obtain. All this we owe to the labors of other men. Let us therefore remember them with gratitude. Let us follow their glorious example by adding something new to the knowledge of mankind. Let us pay to the future the debt which we owe the past. And now here is the most important part, because this is the commandment. All men indeed cannot be poets, inventors, or philanthropists, but all men can join in that gigantic and godlike work, the progress of creation. Whoever improves his own nature improves the universe of which he is a part. He who strives to subdue his evil passions, vile remnants of old four-footed life, and who cultivates the social affectations, he who endeavors to better his condition and to make his children wiser and happier than himself, whatever may be his motives, he will not have lived in vain. Now, I'm not going to go crazier with this. I will read more of this as like a end to this so we can get to our kids and stuff. Okay, Simone? Thank but I you. I want to say that like 
when you begin to see all this, our obsession with pluralism makes a lot more sense because it is through pluralism that God makes his will known. And if you ever had an iteration of humanity that believed themselves to be perfectible, that wanted to end intergeneration, they would be the height of stagnation, the height of sin, almost the height of all evil. Anything who thought that humanity should freeze in one state. And this is why we, while we do believe in like life extensionism in this framework, we're really against stagnating life extensionism, right? Life extensionism without children, life extensionism without intergenerational transfer, life extensionism without humans genetically changing, culturally changing, changing in how we relate to technology. Simone, was there some final ideas you wanted to get out here? Nope. You're just very excited to leave? I think readings are boring, but I think he did say it first and he said it very eloquently. And I think, you know, people should take a look at, maybe you can include, you can include an excerpt from the chapter or somewhere linked to it. Cause I, I do think it's, it's very prescient. And I think maybe we can have some episodes. If people really like this, let us know in the comments, if you want to see some future episodes on the holidays that we practice, cause those are really fun too. Or if you want to see future readings from Holy Text, that's always something that we're happy to yes, do. Yes, prove me wrong, people. And Tell I me you want to hear him read off of the page Very important to more. this religious framework is an understanding of time that we've described in, in other episodes, right? Mm -hmm. Which is you are responsible for everything that happens within any timeline that you choose. Whenever mm -hmm. I choose one action over another, this doesn't mean the timelines don't split, but it does mean that I am fully responsible for my decisions. Every human that doesn't come into existence Every human that suffers, everything that doesn't come to pass because of the choices I'm making is my personal responsibility. And this means that any engagement with sin, right? Sin is anything that deviates from this productive path that I was put on earth for is a really negative thing. Oh, another thing that we can definitely do another episode on is our concept of the elect, which is also important to understand our religion. Mm. Broadly speaking. Nope, nope. Don't give it away. Okay, I won't give it away, but I, yeah, and, and sin is indulgence in anything that is primarily meant to make you happy or to fulfill some self-narrative you have of yourself. So it can also be like self-indulgent, self-victimization, self-indulgent suffering, and sin is okay. We are humans. We are fallen. We are not deserving of paradise yet. Paradise will be created for the iterations of us that are deserving of it, but... But so it is it is sinful to think that you can live without sin, but it is also the height of sin to indulge in sin. And this is a really important aspect of our framework, right? Yes. And that is all for a future episode, because now we need to invest in the future, our children, because they matter a lot. They <laughs> matter you, Malcolm. So. I'm joking. They matter everything. They, they matter, are everything they to us. Too. As Winwood Reed said, and I will hit in recording, but I am going to read this line again. Because it is so important he, to make his children wiser and happier than himself, whatever his motives, he will not have lived in vain. Then to the children. I love you. <laughs> I love you too. This is what we probably sound like to normal people. There is a whole breakaway civilization. What's happening? I'm going to give you the big secret, man, if you, you want Yes, it. I do. This big breakaway civilization of scientists. Is that they, true? Yes. What are you, from Mars? Let's just say it's super advanced. For real? I don't ever talk about this. For real? Breakaway civilization? Are you ready? There's a centralized system of what they're building that isn't naturally occurring. Who's, who is that? They're the high priests. They're scientists. Right. They're engineers. Tell me what you're trying to say. They're racing 
using human technology to try to take our best minds and build some type of breakaway civilization where they're going to merge with machines, transcend, and break away from the failed species that is man. Where are you getting this from? You read their own writings. They believe we're this ugly, fallen, ugly species. We're all need to be killed. It's for research purposes. Exactly. They're going to merge with machines and become gods. Hold on a second. It's just crazy. Isn't it entirely possible that all these futurists, all these technological innovators, they all see the same end game that there's going to be some sort of a complete no, integration between people but it's beyond and artificial that. It's beyond intelligence that. It's beyond that. listen don't hold you on please already i let you go on your crazy rant like it's hold on before. please you're interrupting my crazy rant i am telling you that this is a natural progression of this massive infatuation that we have with technology they don't have to engineer it it's natural okay 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 sure i get it we're on the cusp of figuring out how to manipulate our very beings like to the point where we're not going to be people anymore. They're going to be able to do shit in both ways. I agree. They're going to be Listen, able to do shit they where they're integrating computers. Longer, I'm going to do it. I really think that's what they're doing. Ah! For anyone who is actually nerdy enough to be interested in hearing the rest of the readings of the text, I will finish up what I had intended to read on this episode before we ran out of time. But if he act thus not from mere prudence, not in the vain hope of being rewarded in another world, but from a pure sense of duty as a citizen of nature, as a patriot of the planet on which he dwells, then our philosophy, which once appeared to him so cold and cheerless, will become a religion of the heart and will elevate him to the skies. The virtues which were once for him mere abstract terms will become endowed with life and will hover round him like guardian angels, conversing with him in his solitude, consoling him in his afflictions, teaching him how to live and how to die. But this condition is not to be easily attained, as the saints and prophets were often forced to practice long vigils and fastings and prayers before their ecstasies would fall upon them and their visions would appear. So virtue in its purest and most exalted form can only be acquired by means of severe and long continued culture of the mind. And now this is really important. Persons with feeble and untrained intellects may live according to their conscience, but the conscience itself will be defective. To cultivate the intellect is therefore a religious duty. And when this truth is fairly recognized by men, the religion which teaches that the intellect should be distrusted and that it should be subservient to faith will eventually fall. I give to universal history a strange but true title, the martyrdom of man. In each generation the human race has been tortured that their children may profit by their woes. Our own prosperity is founded on the agonies of ages past. Is it therefore unjust that we also should suffer for the benefit of those who are to come? Famine, pestilence, and war are no longer essential for the advancement of the human race, but a season of mental anguish is at hand hand, and through this we must pass, in order that our prosperity may rise. The soul must be sacrificed, the hope in immortality must die, a sweet and charming illusion must be taken from the human race, as use and beauty vanish never to return. And, uh, you know, I really want to comment on a line that he said here, you know, going into, because they were about to go into World War One and World War Two. uh, 
But a season of mental anguish is at hand, and through this we must pass in order that our prosperity may rise. I am just always astounded by everything he predicted in this, and I, and I should note that while this book may not be popular now, it was fairly popular during its time period. For example, the guy who created the Rhodes Scholarship, Russell Rhodes, said it was the most important book he had ever read. Sherlock Holmes said it was the, the best book ever written. Even Wikipedia right now, I mean, when they find out that I like it, of course they're going to change this, but they're like, Winwood Reed was surprisingly not racist for someone of his time period. So people have probably have to go and back, but he, he had a view of the future of women's role in society, of everything like that, that I think was incredibly even-minded and massively prophetic. And its propheticness to me proves the efficacy of its teachings because it had a level of predictability to it and a predictability still is some of the prophecies have not fully come to pass. You know, we are in a sequence of prophecies unfolding right now. And that is very exciting to me, you know, a, a, a verifiable doctrine. Now, of course, with our wider doctrine, if it does not pass, like if it begins to fail in its predictive capacity, that would mean that other prophets are likely more likely to have accurate visions of the future. But right now, you know, obviously Christ is the core prophet, but Winwood Reed is the most recent and relevant prophet that we base our lives around in terms of the way that he lays out a religious framework. By the way, if you want to read bits from his work, instead of reading the full work because it's a full long history of the human race, it is easier just to read the sections that we requote in the Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion because we have a chapter called Intermission where we publish the excerpt that I read here and that's just much easier to go over. And we also broke it into paragraphs and took out some, some old words and stuff like that that made it difficult for a person to read.